when people get up and get in their car and come, that was an unusual act of grace. Yeah, that was an unusual act of grace. So for me, just want y'all to know, and when y'all go home and watch it, just because you decide you're too tired, understand that Pastor Jesse loves you, but it's the crew that's here that I'm talking to. Right. All right, we're in the book of Hebrews chapter 6. Um, I'm going to read Hebrews 6, verses 4. I'm going to actually read verses 1 through verse um, verse 6. And then we're going to continue working through what are considered eight very Socratic interrogative questions in the narrative. There are eight very Socratic interrogative questions. They're very good questions, and I want us to address them in the narrative. It's going to set the context for you for Sunday. Listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Remember, anytime you read the word perfection, particularly in the New Testament, the word should be translated maturity. Let us go on to maturity. Therefore, leaving the principles, the ABCs of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on unto maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptism and of the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. All of these are cardinal doctrines. They're very important. But what the apostle was saying here to the church was that the church that he's speaking to is the Hebrew Christians. And you need to know that that's the foundation for this particular frame. The frame we're dealing with, very much like we're doing, doing right now with Paul in the book of Romans. You know his, his primary audience are the Jews. His secondary audience are the Gentiles. Here, it's exclusively the Jews who have professed to be Christians, but are waffling between Old Testament and New Testament, between grace and law, between works and faith. That's where they are at the present time. Listen to what's being said here. He says, and he says, and this we will do if God permit, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gifts and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, most people don't know what that means. And you may or may not as well. This is not an easy text to interpret. Uh, but but it's one that is worthy of consideration because the essence of it is going to be described by the questions that Christian raises to the man in the cage. And I'll allude to it here in a moment. One more verse passage I want us to go to. First Timothy chapter four, verses one and two. First Timothy four, one and two. Listen to what it says. Now, the spirit speaks expressly. That means with distinction and clarity. He's not bringing parables. He's not bringing uh, metaphors. He's not bringing opaque, uh, what we call dark speeches. He's being very particular as he speaks to Paul. Now, the spirit speaks with great clarity that in the latter times, some shall do what? Depart from the faith. Now, again, because of where we are in our uh, hyper eschatological uh, culture, whenever you read the term latter times, it does not necessarily mean our days. The book of Hebrews was written about 65, 66 AD. And what the apostle to the Hebrews was saying is that we are living in tr uh, troublesome times and a lot of people are departing from the gospel and going back to works religion. That's what he's saying, okay? It's not that that does not happen cyclically throughout church history. It does. I do believe that we are in a great apostasy in America as well. But this text is not speaking uh, to us, but is speaking for us. As I said on Sunday, every text is not directly a prophetic word to us. We don't need to believe that it's only fulfilled in our time. It happened in the first century. So. He says that in the latter times, one, some shall depart from the faith. I love that. Capture that because it's always only some. 
Please learn that because this is going to be helpful to you when you're making the inquiry as we are among ourselves. What's going on in our world? You know, where are the believers at? We, we hear this and we say it. And we need to be very careful to understand that God is deliberating his purposes in this world in a specific way of continuity. And that is to say, there's never a time when everybody is being saved. And there's never a time where everybody is falling away. And so the key term that Paul uses frequently, which you and I should use, is the word some, some, some fall away, some remain. And that's where the good news is. That's where the hope is. That's where your vision and my vision should be established on the fact of the mystery of godliness and the mystery of iniquity. Right. The mystery of iniquity is that some will fall away. The mystery of godliness is that some will be kept. That, that's the narrative. You guys following me so far? Very important. Like what we're dealing with now is really a scenario, an optic of apostasy and reprobation. I just want you to know that. But we just got through looking at a scenario of God faithfully keeping his servant by pouring oil into the fire. Remember? So you got to have both sides when it comes to the word of God. There will be those whom God will keep. There will be those that God will let go. And this is where I, this is the reason why Pilgrim, uh, a Christian, is not on his journey yet, because the interpreter wants him to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. It's always some will believe. And others will not. And so this is the and, and then I have to put a qualifier on it, too. But notice what it goes on to say. Some shall depart from the faith doing what? Giving heed to seducing spirits. And again, I'm forced to do somewhat of an, uh, uh, an explanation here when it says giving heed to seducing spirits is not meaning uh, getting caught up in seances or getting caught up in some kind of demon visitation or dark, uh, you know, non-corporeal entities coming at you. That's not what that means. It simply means that the demonic forces behind false doctrine and false teachings lay out ideas that trap men and women and take them away from the gospel. Y'all keeping up with me? All right, very good. Then it goes on to say, and then therefore what? Doctrines of devils. Seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. These are two sides of the same coin. Look at verse two. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, there it is, uh, and then notice, here's the result of that kind of behavior, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And again, that needs to be explained to you because you may not get it, but you do know that if you take a hot iron and you put it on your flesh and you burn your skin, you actually kill all of the nerves on your skin and that skin will die. And therefore you will lose your feeling. Does that make sense? The regenerative dynamics are gone. And if your skin stays, it becomes petrified and hard. The root term here is scoliosis. It has to do with the hardening of the conscience so that the conscience is no longer flexible to be influenced or impact impacted by divine providence or by the word of God or by God's interventions. Did that make some sense? All right, so stay with me on that. This is extremely important. So I'm going to leave that there for now, and let's read through the uh, narrative of Bunyan. And I'm going to actually be dealing with, with, with points here in your, uh, in your outline, a man in an iron cage. Notice what it says. So he took me, he took him, that is interpreter, took Christian by the hand again. We've talked about that, right? Christian is being led. The Holy Ghost leads us, right? Hadagos is the term to be led, taken by the hand because we're children and we must be led. And as many as are led of the spirit, these are the what? Sons of God. So the spirit of God has to be the one to lead you. The spirit of God has to be the one to actually call your attention to the things he wants you to see so you can be educated in the reality of the kingdom. Remember, the kingdom of God is a mystery. And so those mysteries have to be interpreted, do they not? And unless the spirit of God gives us portal into insights, into segments of kingdom activity, you and I are walking in darkness, are we not? 
All right, so this is what he goes on to say here. So he took him by the hand, led him into a what? Very dark room. Very dark room. Now, of course, in your outline, that's what we're going to deal with tomorrow, okay? We're going to deal with that. But notice what he goes on to say. Where sat a man in a cage? So there's a man in a cage, which is really a paradox in a set of contradictions because men were not meant to be caged. So one has to understand we're dealing with an incongruent metaphor here. How is it that this man is in a cage like an animal trapped, unable to move about? That is what Christian now has to work through. And you notice how Christian responds. Notice what it goes on to say. Now, the man to look on seemed very what? He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. Then said Christian, what does this mean? So you see Christian is alarmed, is he not? He's not giving an interpretation. He's not coming off optimistic or confident. He is in a conundrum because the vision right now is apprehensive to him. It ought to be. He has come through five other visions and those visions have been insightful and compelling and, and rich. Again, the fourth vision of the firewall of faith troubled him a bit because he realized that God must keep him. And now he's coming up on this image that he can't quite put together. And so the first thing he's doing is asking the interpreter, what does this mean? Great, because what Christian wants to do is get the lesson on excellent things before he leaves the house. Now, a lot of times what Christians often will not do because they're distracted or because they are proud is not be willing to ask questions. You and I know that we can have a problem with that. Is that not true? We can come into a space or a community, into an environment. We can come into a context like this that really requires for you to think well, and you may not have the capacity of thinking well, and um, you, you won't be honest about the fact that you're not getting it. And often it's simply a question that has to be asked. And one of the things you do with children, if you want them to really be competent in education, is you help them have the confidence and courage to ask questions. Now, a lot of times when children are impeded from having that confidence to ask questions, they cannot be helped because they're too afraid to ask. If they're punished for asking too many questions, they're going to be angry and withdrawn but they're not going to be helped. And so here we are in a scenario where Christian is asking the question. No, do you got, you should have, you should have a text up there. Uh, you should be able to follow me in our text. They shouldn't be, it shouldn't just be the screen. Somebody should be helping her because you can find the text online and we have it somewhere up there. I know, I know that uh, Akilah was able to pick it up last time. It's in the bulletin. So it should have been filed in because I sent it to Tanchea. So it should have been filed in there. You can find that text online. But anyhow, you guys do have it in your paper. But notice what it goes on to say. He asked the question, what means this? At which the interpreter told him to do what? Talk with the man. Now, immediately we have a whole new dynamic. Do you know what that is? Christian now has gone from being an objective observer of a television program or a movie cinema screen event where he could not interact to where he is now in the metaverse of this particular frame. He's actually able to engage the man. This is unique and important. Why? Because I believe that what the interpreter wants Christian to do is have a visceral, tactile, physical, mono-e-mono dialogue with the man because the man in front of Christian could be Christian down the line in his journey if he doesn't take heed to the warning. Are you keeping up with me? It's important for you to get this. This will get unpacked tomorrow night. This will get unpacked. But think about it like this, if you will, how the Spirit of God will give you vivid experiences beyond the normal 
in order for your attention level to be raised so that you can act on it, knowing that this one here is not something way off down the road or this is those other people's problems is brought so close to you that you are obligated to engage it for the answer. See what I'm getting at? Very important. And now we're getting ready to get at eight very probing Socratic questions that are critical for Christian to have the answer. Now notice the interpreter is not going to answer the question for Christian. Christian has to do what Jesus said in Luke eleven nineteen. You have to ask. You have to seek. You have to knock. You have to ask. You have to seek. You have to knock. Isn't that what Jesus said? Isn't that what James said? James said you have not because what? Right. Right. So what's really powerful about this event is that then what's going on if he is a participant in the unfolding revelation. And you and I are going to see once we get on the road on the other side of Calvary that he's going to run into scenarios and situations just like this. Watch what I'm saying. Here we go. Question number one. Question number one in the uh uh, what I call the Socratic query. Interrogative questions are questions that are designed once you ask them to force the person that you're asking to give you a direct answer. You can ask all kinds of questions in the world, but an interrogative is interrogating for the purpose of getting the right answer from the person that you're talking to. So here's what Christian does. He says, first and foremost, this is the first question. Are you guys there? What are you? Do you see that? You see, now I'm not going to be long with this one here, but he says, what are you? Isn't it fascinating that he didn't say, who are you? And, and again, we could, we, could, we could wrap our heads around that concept. And tomorrow night, I'd much rather have time doing that because um, we, we got impeded tonight by technology. So I'm going to leave you kind of hanging with the what instead of the who. But I've shared this with you before, children of God. There is a distinction in the Imago Dei in you and your person between the who of you and the what of you. I've talked to you about the difference between the who of you. Who are you? Christian is not asking that question. Christian is asking, what are you? And what this has to do with is with an explanation as to your situation. That's going to be followed up in the next question. So when somebody says, what are you? They are asking you about your situation, your occupation, your position, your relevance in that immediate event. We're not asking who the man is. You know, tell me what your name is, who your father is, who you're. No. What are you? Help me understand what he's about to ask now. How is it that you got into this situation? Okay, now this is important for you to get. So yeah, those are not going to be, um, that's going to be for tomorrow night, you guys. All I wanted was a scripture reading, and you probably can't, can't pull it up unless you can get into my email and get the text. But I sent it to all of you guys. Hey, Duke, Jashana, I sent you guys the reading of the text. You should be able to pull it up and put it on the screen. Anyhow, but they have it in, they have it in the outline. They can use it there. Notice what he goes on to say after, then said Christian to the man, what are you? What are you? The man answered, I am what I was not once. Now, this is what is called an ellipsis of a phrase. It's phrasing that's terse and short and makes no sense unless you are able to deconstruct it in a more elongated fashion. I am what I once was not. OK, so. Basically, what he is saying is this. If you would have saw me a year ago, I would have been different than I am now. Whatever that means. He's going to explain that here going forward. So it really a lot of the way that Christian is going to be doing his inquiry is like a detective drilling down into the situation to get more data to build some conclusions, which is why the interpreter wants him to do it. So first he asks him, what are you? In Proverbs chapter 3, 23, verse 6, we used this last time, 23, verse 7, said this, as a man thinks in his heart, what? Now, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And that's because the essence of who we are 
is what we are internally, is it not? The essence of who we are is what we are internally also. The evidence of what we are internally is seen by what's taking place externally, okay? The essence of what we are internally is seen by what takes place externally. In other words, there is a direct correlation between what I truly am in my heart and what the ultimate expression or outcome or manifestation of my situation is. That's what the text is teaching, and that's what the man is being honest about. But again, we'll flesh that out tomorrow night. So we have come to our second question. Uh, uh, you know, who are you? What, what, um, what are you one? The man, says, man answered, I am what I once, I am what I was not once. Or you could say, I am what I was not once. Christian, what were you once? Because the man is telling us to go backwards. If you want to know what I was before, here's what it is. Now listen carefully to what he says. The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor. What does he mean? I was once an open professor of Christ appearing to be at the highest level of Christian integrity and character. Everybody knew me as a prospering Christian. That's what he's saying here. I was once a what? Fair and flourishing professor. Now listen to what he says here. This is interesting. Both in the in my own eyes, that's one, do you see it? And also in the eyes of what? I once was, as I thought, fair for the celestial city. This is a powerful insight into a warning that Christ gives to all of us about the nature of the kingdom of God. Now notice what he's saying. I once was known as a good Christian. I was known as a prosperous Christian. The word fair there again is the old English Saxon term for good. Okay. And Paul makes use of this profoundly in the scriptures when he warns about this kind of person who puts on a form of godliness an external manifestation of godliness so that he or she accrues to themselves a reputation by others that they are a good Christian. Are you keeping up with me? Right? Look at the text carefully. Look at the line carefully. This is quite insightful. And I've taught you this before. You may not remember it. But what this man is dealing with is an assessment purely predicated on the perception of men. What he is saying is, I determined what I was in my own eyes, and I behaved in a way to get the approval that I needed from others just like me. I behaved in a fashion to put on an appearance of being a good Christian and other people told me I was. Did that make sense? Right, now watch this. That is dangerous. Now remember, what book did I tell you that this text is primarily speaking to? The book of Hebrews. It's speaking to Hebrews chapter 6, and it's speaking to Hebrews chapter 10. The doctrine under consideration is the searing of the conscience. Now, the searing of the conscience, that's in your outline, listen carefully to me, is a process. The searing of the conscience is a process by which the human species, the person, over time neglecting the importance of a conscience that's healthy enough to be able to negotiate right and wrong, neglecting their conscience leads their conscience to become shipwrecked and ultimately inoperable when it comes to determining what truth is. A seared conscience leaves an individual actually unable to negotiate with God 
when it is in trouble. All right, see, we'll work this through. Notice what he goes on to say. I'm giving you way too much data. Notice what he goes on to say. Um, I was once, as I thought, fair for the celestial city and had then even joy at the thought that I should get there. He says, you know, at one point I felt like I was on my way doing well, enjoying myself. And others were telling me how much of a good Christian I was. You do understand we're dealing with the shallow ground here or here. This is the parable of the sower and the seed. Who believed for a while, but when trouble came, they fell away. Right. This is the question that often I'm getting with Christians around faith, um, because faith is such a. Uh, ambiguous concept if you don't understand it in its organic nature. Remember the question we got last Friday around the man that asked, you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I and I we wrestled with the idea that you don't want to create a faulty definition of faith by somehow categorizing it as a static thing and therefore falling prey to a faulty bifurcation or either or either I have faith or I don't have faith. That, that will completely destroy the reality of who you are in your walk with God. Did that make some sense? No, it's not that you have faith or not. It's that you have faith and you also have unfaith. They both coexist at the same time. What exists at the same time with faith is unbelief. Didn't we talk about that? And unless you reconcile that reality, then you have to readjust your lens of perception of yourself and other things around you by either saying either I'm saved or I'm not. If I am saved, then I'm always believing. If I am not saved, then I'm always not believing. Did that make some sense? And if you can't hold intention that we are both believing and not believing, then you fail to understand what it means to be an organic believer with an organic faith that has to grow in an organic body that is not yet perfect. This is why your theology has to be solid if your reality is going to correspond with theology. Does that make some sense? Right. Otherwise, if you are falling prey to, let's say, because this person Bunyan is presenting to you and I is a works religionist. Do you understand that? He is a man who has bought into the notion that his mere performance ought to be enough. And because of that, he has actually been the measure of his performance. And he has allowed others to be the measure of his performance. And so he was good so long as he was fair in his own eyes. And he was good so long as other people were saying that he was fair. Listen to me, child of God. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. That's Luke 16. You can find it. What are we talking about? And who quoted that? Jesus did. What did Jesus say? He said, you fellas look good on the outward. Who was he talking to? The Pharisees. You keeping up with me? Right. It's important for you to get the context so you and I can know where we are on the spectrum of, uh, of, of believing. Just, there you go. Thank you, you guys. And so notice what he it goes on to say over in verse uh, uh, the next statement. Christian is now moving to what I would consider uh, his third or fourth. Let me see here in my. In my situation, yeah, Christian says, well, but what are you now? That's his third question, right? What are you now? Okay, I, I, you told us what you were. Got it. You were a, flare, a fair, flourishing Christian. But what are you now? Great question, isn't it? What are you now then? Because the man said, I am not what I used to be. Okay, so now tell us what are you? Great question. Listen to what he goes on to say. The man said, I am now a man of despair. That's the first thing you want to lift up. We'll talk about it tomorrow. I'm a man of despair. That is the prominent expression of my character and my person. I feel like I have to explain these things as I go because we all deal with a bit of this. And if you are not grounded in 
in theological reality, you might seize this opportunity to say, ah, I'm the man in the cage because I just spare too. But would that really be true? Maybe, maybe not. Am I making some sense? That someone says, I am prominently known by a state of constantly despairing. And then you see their pericope, their, their environment, their situation. And you can put a label on it. This here man is an apostate. Does that make you one just because you despair? Paul despaired. David despaired. Hannah despaired. Did you hear what I just stated? Now, we do want to be careful to capture this particular negative emotional attribute. Isn't that right? It's a negative emotional attribute. Despairing is a negative emotional attribute. We want to capture it, but we would want to go, of what are you despairing? Don't just jump in and join the man just because you know what despair is. Frequently, Christians do that because they're not grounded. Am I making some sense? We will quickly join misery because we're miserable ourselves. I will tell you right now, don't get in that man's cage. If you have to, build your own cage. Don't get in another person's cage. Now I'm laying a foundation and I want you to capture it because this is one of the most sober optics, one of the most sober analogies with a very serious topic. The searing of the conscious, you guys, actually corresponds with almost the warning that Jesus gives about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's where we are. You need to know that. Okay, that's where we are. You and I, we really do need to be able to work through what does that mean? Would you agree? Right. Don't be flipping about it. This is what this account is warning. This is what, what Christian is going to go away learning about this man in the cage is you don't play games with the warnings that scripture gives you. That's what this text is saying. Listen to what he goes on to say. I am now a man of despair and I am shut up in this iron cage. Do you guys see that construction? I want you to understand what he did right here because in a minute he's going to say it a different way. He says, I am shut up in this cage. Now, in English grammar, the way that the subject is addressing it is that he, in the passive mode, has somehow been put in this cage by someone else. Did you hear me? So he would have you to think something or someone or other circumstances put him there and he had nothing to do with it. Did that make some sense? All right. So that's the first way he's framing it. Now, we'll come back. We'll come back. We'll come back. We'll come back to that. But right now, just understand this gives you insight into the instability of his own self-reflection. That's one. Because watch what he goes on to say. I love this. I'm a man of despair and shut up in this iron cage. And then he says what? I cannot get out. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. Which implies he tried. Implies that he tried. Does that make some sense? Now, this is a lot of data. You guys need to know this. This is a lot of data. This is a lot of data. The data that he's getting is that he's in the cage because he used to be something that he really wasn't. And because of what he really is now, he's in this cage. And he's in this cage by somebody else's doing. And he's actually trying to get out, but he can't. And I'm going to submit to you that he's not telling the whole truth. But this is what happens when the conscience is not working in a healthy way to correspond with reality. We are often rationalizing our experience in a way that proves that we are being inconsistent. Am I making some sense? Particularly when you get a kind of uh, uh, Inspector Columbo drilling down on you with that cigar in his mouth. saying, can I, can I ask you one more time? Just excuse me, just one more time. And now you're coming unraveled because you're used, you're not used to being completely honest. Which is what happens when the conscience is seared. Okay? The last thing you and I want to do is to have to come under the scrutiny of judgment when we're not right with God. This is what I told you last week. You and I should want our best friend to be humility. Didn't I say that? 
Because when humility is your best friend, you can more easily say I'm wrong. Because God only gives grace to the humble. And when you and I are proud, it means you haven't made room for humility to be your friend. And we're going to fight against everything that might be right about my behavior. See what I'm getting at? Let me keep going because there's a few more that I want you to capture with me. He says, I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. So now we're supposed to be pity him for somebody else putting him in there. Him wanting to get out and he can't. We won't do that, sir. Not tonight. Christian, but how did you come into this condition? How did you come into this condition? This is the fourth interrogative. This is the fourth query. Listen to the man. I left off to watch and be sober. Now he's telling the truth. Do you see it? All right, so it's important for you to capture this. We got about 10, 15 minutes left. Now, this is data. We are, this here is in what, what is called discovery mode. This is a discovery mode. All the data is coming out. You know what I'm talking about, Jashana. You know what I'm talking about, girl. This is a discovery mode. We're getting all the information necessary so we can line up a case for what this really is. Right? This is a discovery mode. He says, I left off to watch and be sober. Now, what does that amount to scripturally? It amounts to not obeying God. I mean, and here's the word that I want you to capture. It's, it amounts to disregarding the warnings of scripture. Does the scripture warn you to be sober? Does it warn you to be vigilant? Does it warn you that you have an adversary called the devil that goes about as a roaring lion seeking he, whom he may devour? Right. But if you leave off to be sober and watchful, you're not only opening yourself up for the hazard of the legitimacy of the warning, you are rebelling against the one who graciously gave you the warning. Is that true? All right, let's keep going. Very important. The second thing he said is, not only did I leave off to watch and be sober, I laid the reins upon the neck of my what? This is the metaphor of him becoming a horse given to the thrusting out in full throttle and full gallop toward the fulfillment of his lust. Do you see it? Now, this is quite fascinating. It's quite fascinating because you know what he's starting to do now? Now that he has a therapist in the cage with him, he's confessing. Now that he has a therapist in the cage, he's confessing. This is important. This is important because this would infer that when Christian is not there, he has no one to talk to. Now, notice what he goes on to say. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lust. I sinned against the light of the word of God and the goodness of God. See it? Now he is becoming clear and honest about the one of whom he has openly rebelled against. Notice what he does here. And again, I already got this laid out in your outline for tomorrow night. So when we go through it, it'll be a piece of cake. He says, I have sinned against light and goodness. What that means is that he's saying, I sinned with my eyes wide open in a full knowledge of what God's word said. And in spite of knowing what the scripture said, I did what I wanted to do anyway. I was not ignorant of my behavior. That's what he's saying. I have grieved the spirit. Do you see that what he says? I have grieved the spirit. Again, we're going to unpack that tomorrow. Please listen carefully to what he's saying. He's saying, I'm in the situation that I'm in because over a lengthy period of time, I disregarded the mechanism of my conscience, which God uses to let me know he knows about me and my heart and my motives and my intents and my desires and my actions. And I, as it were, went over to the wall of my conscience and cut the light switch off. Keep it up with me. That's what he's saying. And then he says, because I did that, I have what? Grieved the Holy Spirit, one. 
and he has left me. Now, is the man being dramatic or is he actually describing the incremental process of apostasy and departure from God when one is told over and over and over and over and over again to watch and be sober? The latter is true. This is Proverbs chapter 18, maybe verse one. I haven't looked at it a long time. Can you pull it up? Proverbs 18, one. He that often, or maybe 19, one, but let, let me see Proverbs 18, one first. Uh, this one will work as well. Through lust, a man having what? Separated himself, seeketh and intermeddleth with all wisdom. This text can be understood this way. When a man is given to his lust, he will find himself separating from God and exploring every vile thing in the world. Proverbs 19.1. Look at Proverbs 19.1. Uh, okay, so I don't, I don't want to use that one. Um, it'll come back later. But here's how the text goes. He that is often reproved and does not listen will be broken and that without remedy. Okay, 29.1. Once a person hears over and over and over again, there are consequences to not listening. Am I making some sense? Child of God. Am I making some sense? Right, very important. I, I, I was up late last night on this text, working through it exegetically for tomorrow, and I was up early this morning getting back on it because of my years of study way back on the conscience. And this was even before we were, I taught that in our old church, the issue of the conscience. Sunwido is the Greek, Greek term, sunedon. And it's a combination between the preposition, or prefix sun, which means to be with, and wido, to know, to know together with. That's what the conscious is. It's very much like the English translation of conscience. It's the mechanism by which you and I are aware, by which you and I know, for which when we stand before the Lord, we won't be able to say, I did not know. It's the conscious that holds all of the data of the internal actions and dynamics of the soul in the spiritual or in the heart realm where nobody else sees, God sees, and you and I see. Is that true? Now, there comes a time when you can cut the switch off on the conscience. Do you hear me? There comes a time when you can cut the switch off. This is what he's teaching you. This man is telling you there's a time when you can cut the switch off on the conscious. And guess what? The conscious will not serve as a legitimate medium between God's truth and your soul to lead you to respond appropriately to what you know. You can know it in your cranium and have absolutely no compelling resolve to act on it when the conscious is seared. Am I helping you? It's very important to, to know, there it is, it's very important for us to know that. Let me get all the way through this for tonight. I left off to watch and be sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lust. I sinned against the light and the word of God. I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. How powerful is that? That's palpable. This is not theatrics. So I'm going to give you this as an assignment and we'll drill down into it tomorrow. Remember who the third person is, child of God. Remember who the third person is. The third person is the nearest of the Godhead to you. He's the nearest of the Godhead to you. He's the vouchsafe of Jesus, your mediator. He is the e-mediator. He's the immediate presence of God. He's the immediate presence of God. He's the thing that was not there before you were converted. He's the entity that was not with you before your salvation. When you lived in the duality of soul and body, but dead spiritually, the Lord was not with you. You were conscious, you were aware of a bunch of things. You did not have the spirit of God. Many women are not born with the spirit of God. Men and women don't grow up with the third person being a paraclete to everybody. You could have grown up in a Christian home where you were in the realm of the third person. 
as he was dictating how mom and dad should behave, who then exposed you to the word of truth so that you were in a realm of proximity near him. Did you guys hear what I just stated? But until you're converted, you don't have the immediator in your life bearing record with your spirit that you are a child of God. But this will also give you an eye insight as to what I've told you before. The spirit of God deals with all human beings at the uh, stewardship level, but it doesn't mean we're converted, does it? And so what we're dealing with here has to do with degrees of God's grace and favor departing from the man or the woman who is basically saying to God, I don't want you in my life. That makes sense, right? Does it make sense? Right, because this is exactly what he did. I sinned against the word and against the light. I grieved the Holy Spirit, he's gone. Now here's what he also says. And then I tempted the devil. And he has come to me. So notice what he says, saints. This is, by the way, this is one of the frames in the interpreter's house that many Christian pastors in this generation, for which many Christian pastors do not like the Pilgrim's Progress. Ask me why. Because in our churches today, salvation is such a shallow and cheap commodity sold at a decision for Jesus. Stick it in your back pocket and just walk down the road as if you could hoodwink God by some emotional uh, 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 ejection of prayers. The theologians call it ejaculation of prayers as you can as if you can kind of emotionally tell God, can you give me a card to put in my pocket? And I just go on living like I want to. You and I have talked about salvation being so profoundly uh, Trinitarian in their nature. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have we not? That the Father drew up the plan, the Son accomplished it by, by virtue of the crown rights of Calvary. And the Spirit of God is executing that covenant, that, that gracious covenant work in the lives of men and women. The third person is one with whom we must pay careful heed. He shows you Christ. And by the way, you guys know when he said, I have grieved the spirit, that's Ephesians 4.30. You know that. Y'all do know that. And remember what Ephesians 4.30 says? Grieve not the spirit. That's another warning. He says, but that's exactly what I did. And I want you to mark how he does this. Here's what he says. When I pushed God away, I tempted the devil and he took God's place. When I pushed God away, I tempted the devil and he, see, in other words, no, no one of us live in a vacuum. You don't live in a vacuum. You and I are either operating in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of Satan. We are operating either in the kingdom of light or the kingdom of what? Now, remember what the title was of this opening commentary about this space? And he took me to a very dark room. You guys remember that? This is what we're going to pick up tomorrow because it's the kingdom of God, a dark room. It's exactly the opposite, is it not? Let me go on so we can finish this up. Just need to read a few more questions here. Notice then Christian said to the interpreter, I'm sorry, we need to finish this last part because it's there. Notice what it says. I have tempted the devil. He has come to me. I have provoked God to anger. Is that possible? And he has left me. Is it possible for God to leave you? I'm so glad you said yes, because if you know your Bible, you know it's true. God not only leaves men, he'll leave his saints temporarily to get at them, will he not? Yeah. This is, this, this remember when Christian was watching uh, the, the movie that he wasn't a part of? He's in the metaverse right now. Remember the movie he was watching called The uh, Stately Palace? How it enthusiastically said, I want to go, I want to go. You remember that? You know what he's saying now? Hey, can this movie just stop? I, I really want to leave. And you know what the interpreter says is no. You're part of this movie. You got to stay here until the end. This is the part of biblical teaching people don't like. This is the part that people don't like. When you're held to account for your part of the covenant responsibility. Am I making sense? 
This is a part that, that is what I'm saying. Uh, in the evangelical church over the last 150 years, whenever your shallow, weak, self-centered, narcissistic pastors who fundamentally put all of the salvation on such an empty thing like a rhetoric of accept Jesus into your heart, when they read about the arduous labor of conversion as being described by this text, remember, Pilgrim is not saved yet. Christian has not made it to the top of the hill. He hasn't seen the power of the cross dropping the pack off of his back. But the Holy Ghost is doing what? Drawing him. By doing what? Educating him in the excellent things of the word of God so that he is thoroughly rooted in Christ and is able to walk with him through all of the hazards that these seven frames are warning him about. These frames are warning him about hazards that he's about to meet. I'm so glad I read the book. Have you read the book? I already know down the road, he's going, Christian is going to be dealing with the dungeon of despair. At Giant Castle. He needs to know that he has to negotiate that right or he could end up like this man. Give me a few more minutes of your time. Notice what he says, and he left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. There it is. So, you know, we, we talk about two sides of the relationship between God and man, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We talk about the perseverance of saints, which is the passive experience of the believer as God preserves him, but we also talk about the perseverance of the saints, which is the active responsibility of the Christian to engage God at the level of worthiness so that they don't act like this just because God is near in telling you how to be. You guys understand that? Got a little bit more to go. We'll be done. Notice what he says. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Can you imagine a person being in that condition? Can you imagine a person being that? What? Please tell me. Can you? Because if you can't, it would tell me that you haven't been a Christian long at all. Because human beings do this all the time. Do you understand that? Human beings harden their hearts, resolving to go in a certain path, no matter what kind of warnings are given them. No matter what kind of warnings. And when they're in that state right there of impenitency of behavior, what are they doing to their conscience? They're searing their conscience. They're making it useless. So that at a certain point, no matter how much word is thrown at their hearing, it does not move them to repentance. That's the warning that Jesus gave in the parable of the sword and the seed. Remember, he warned us. He told us it's important for you. Now, notice what it said. Then said Christian to the interpreter. But is there no hopes for such a man as this? <laughs> I love this. Is there no hopes for such a man as this? What does the interpreter say? Ask him yourself. Right, see, so Christian does not get to just sit on the sideline and create a false narrative about this individual. He has to participate, engage him, and feel all of the vulnerability, all of the potential, all of the possibility of him being that very man himself. See what I'm getting at? This is important. This is important. It's important. All right, let's go on to the next question because we got three more. Notice what it says. Christian then said, is there no hope, but you must be kept in the iron cage of despair? And the man said, what? No, none at all. No, none at all. So here's the word I want you to capture as we get ready to close. Are you ready? Here's the word I want you to capture. The, I'm going to give you the whole sentence. Let me give this to you just in case you don't join us tomorrow night. 
The man that was asked, what are you? Who ended up saying, I am now what I was not once. Was actually saying to Christian that he is a hopeless, hell-bound sinner. Did you get it? Get it. And don't listen to it as if it's some kind of lyric in a song. He's describing hopelessness. He is a hopeless, hell-bound sinner. Listen carefully. Who knows it? Who knows it? And notice what Christian says. Why? The son of the blessed is very what? This man used to hear all of that when he was in his fair weather Christian profession. He heard all of the how merciful the Lord is, how blessed, how, how good God is, how God is good and God is good what? All the time. You know how we do in religion. And, and God is merciful. God will forgive. God will forgive. He heard all that. Did he not hear all that? And this is where only in a few com communities we let you know. God will not always hear you. Well, let me ask you, am I telling the truth or am I lying? Because you'll go to church and they'll tell you, just God will, God will hear you always. Just, just call on the Lord. He'll hear you. It doesn't matter. Completely ignoring the warning of Scripture. Again, warning, I have called on you and you would not listen. I have cried out to you, but you would not hear. Therefore, in your calamity, even when you cry out to me, I will not hear you. Did that make some sense? Now, this one is actually a worse case than that. Can I tell you why as we finish? This man is in a position where he has persuaded himself because it's all about him. And I want you to go back in your own time and read that whole narrative, and I'll tell you what. It was I, 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 I. That's the danger of the Christian focusing way too much on yourself. You guys keeping up with me? I know it's painful, but it's necessary. Remember I was telling little Nylee a couple, two or three Tuesdays ago, if you guys heard, she was asking about, you know, so what goes on when, and we're going to stop right here so we can get into prayer. What goes on when, when, when I'm going through so many, how can I tell, you know, when I'm going through all of these difficult trials and difficulties, you know, for, for serving Christ? And I warned her, I said, one of the things you need to be careful not to do, and I've seen this in Christianity a lot, is make all of your struggles about you. There are a lot of people who love to glorify in their struggles. This is nothing but self-glory. Do you understand that? It's self-glory if you make everything about you when the one to whom you were attached is granting you the capacity to get up out of yourself and into Christ who is the one that's able to deliver you. Should not your conversation be, I love the Lord because he hath heard my cry and delivered me out of a horrible pit? Amen. Am I making some sense? Yes. Right, so this is where, you, you didn't see it, but I'm giving it to you for free. This here is a self-centered, man-centered narrative that's largely about him and almost kneel about the objective work of the one true and living God in the person of Christ and the merits of his power to redeem us from all iniquity. You don't even hear it there. In other words, you did not hear the gospel here. Did you? Because the gospel is gone from this person. He has shunned the gospel. He has shunned the gospel. The gospel is not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about how bad you are. That's still a backdoor method of narcissism. Oh man, I'm so horrible. I'm so sinful. 
I'm so wicked. I'm so this, I'm so that. And what we're going to learn on Sunday is that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The devil did come to him and magnify him to the degree that he can no longer see the magnified Lord who is able to save to the uttermost anyone that will come to him by faith. Here's the problem. The man doesn't even have the capacity to ask for mercy. You got it? <laughs> 